Welcome to Lectionary Call-In for Tuesday, June 21st of 2022, where two laypersons, a pastor and an academician, gather for about 45 minutes each week to discuss the Gospel Lectionary for the coming Sunday, the Sunday, June 26th. Each Tuesday, we call in from wherever we may be at 6.30 Eastern Time, and that includes our good friend Charles Willard in Minnesota, who's calling in at 5.30 a.m. Our little team's working to be faithful to Lectionary Year C. That puts us in the Gospel of Luke on Sunday, and we hope the discussion will provide areas of focus and reflection. Here's how it works. We develop perspectives independently after the lead-off person shares some formative questions, and then in this virtual discussion room, we share and encourage and challenge each other. And our friend Wilson uh, is going to be on point this week. Uh, and uh, as a part of that, let me go ahead and have everybody who's a part of the discussion introduce themselves. Bill Hall, St. Petersburg, Florida. Charles Willard, Minneapolis, no, sorry, Maple Grove, Minnesota. <laughs> Sarah Mickelson in Tampa. Home in the lightning. Woo-hoo! I'm Don Upton. I'm in Charlotte, North Carolina. Hello, everybody. Good to have you here. And Sarah Mickelson is on point this week. Just a reminder to everybody, our point portion of each week shares questions. And we hope those questions might help you as we work through them, that they might uh, support your discussion groups, your facilitation of conversations, roundtables about the same scripture. Hello, my friend. What do you have in store for us today? Don, you changed up the intro. I love it. Well, look, at, you know, I'm a wild guy. Come on. <laughs> Aren't you supposed to say wild and crazy guy? Um, so we're looking at Luke chapter 9, verses 51 through 62 today. Welcome to um, Proper 8, following Trinity Sunday. Um, This passage takes place prior to the crucifixion, so uh, we've been with Jesus doing miracles and walking around, and we are now changing course. We're changing direction, we're changing purpose, and we'll start with verse 51. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent his messengers ahead of him. On their way, they entered a village of Samaritans to make ready for him. But they did not receive him, they, because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? And he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. And as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And to another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me say farewell to those at home. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts a hand to a plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. And that ends the reading of our passage. What a peculiar collection of reading or points, I should say. Um, I have three questions, and the three questions um, have a lot to do with 
the randomness of these words, but I'm kind of trying to figure out what they mean for us today. In verses 52 through 56, Jesus appears to encounter the lived-in prejudice between Samaritans and Jews. Luke gives us the familiar who is my neighbor, good Samaritan story in the very next chapter, chapter 10, verses 30 through 37. Here's my question. What connections do you see between Jesus setting his face toward Jerusalem and these events that prompt us to have the Good Samaritan story? And Bill volunteered prior to our call to be the first to field this question. So, Bill, what do you got for us? Okay, Sarah. Um, I always look at the parallel passages. So, uh, I looked and noticed in Luke, uh, this chapter 9, at the beginning of this chapter, when Jesus commissioned the 12 disciples to go out and minister, he set no geographical boundaries. However, in Matthew chapter 10, when Jesus commissions the 12, he instructs them to, quote, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, end quote. This puzzled me, and it led me to question in a new way on this Luke passage why Jesus might have offered in Matthew this instruction that seems to us at best as strange and at worst contradictory. And so I went to a number of resources. One that seemed very helpful is called the Cultural Background Study Bible, as that title implies. It, it looks at the influence of the culture and the history. And just a reminder, I think, of what we already know, when the northern kingdom, Israel, uh, was exiled, uh, not all the Jews left, and other foreigners came in, and there were mixed uh, religions and mixed marriages, forming the group we call the Samaritans, who were uh, a mix of Jewish and Gentile, um, and hostility developed between those two groups, especially after the southern kingdom fell and Jews came back to, to the area of Jerusalem and uh, Israel. Um, and the, the Jews insisted that Jerusalem was the proper place for the temple. The Samaritans said it was Mount Gerizim. And we know this from various references in Josephus's Antiquities. And the Samaritan Pentateuch even modified the Ten Commandments to include a demand that worship be at Mount Gerizim. And there were physical acts of violence um, in the era before Jesus. Uh, Judeans destroyed the Samaritan Temple on Mount Gerizim. And in the first century of Jesus, uh, a group of Samaritans entered the Jerusalem temple secretly and desecrated it with corpses. And Galileans usually um, journeyed through Samaria for to go to festivals in Jerusalem. Um, but 
Samaritans sometimes heckled. And so there's this whole hostility that is deeply, and your word was lived in prejudice. So um, I, I still puzzle over the Matthew account, at least initially not to go to Samaria. Um, but it is a reminder, as Mark Davis says, quote, we have to remember how provincial the cities were surrounded by walls and deeply suspicious of, of visitors. So this passage uh, reflects, I think, honestly, the depth of the prejudice that can uh, exist. Um, so it may be in this Luke account, in Luke's writing of it, he has Jesus seeking to clarify his message about relationships with those considered to be enemies, which is underscored, as you noted, in chapter 10, the following chapter in Luke, uh, with the story of the Good Samaritan, who is the true neighbor. And later in chapter 17 of Luke, by noting that the only leper who returned to thank Jesus for healing him of the 10 lepers, the only one was a Samaritan. And then in Luke's writing in Acts 8, Philip goes to Samaria, preaches the gospel, which is received, leading the apostles in Jerusalem to send also Peter and John to minister among the Samaritans. Um, according to my research, among the synoptic gospels, Luke is the only one that presents Jesus as traveling through Samaria. Um, and John uh, includes the story of the Samaritan woman at the well. So I don't offer a resolution, uh, more kind of a mulling, uh, Sarah, over your question <laughs> and still puzzling. And I'll leave it there. Charles, do you have any thoughts? No, I think that's a great job, Bill. Thank you. Don, you got any ideas on um, what the connection might be between Jesus setting his face toward Jerusalem and those um, these events? Well, to, to set the stage, this is setting up a big piece of travel literature. You know, this is the beginning of lots of movement of Christ through different places. And I remember when um, we, we honor uh, Bill Wallace, who's no longer with us, who taught generations at Pharmacy of Presbyterian Church about lectionary guided us through that and I have a highlight in my notes on this section where he says to begin this make it very clear that this is something like a serious breach of hospitality that, that, this, that we're not to enter this going well they had some calls to make about whether or not they want Jesus to be present with them or not it's like no this is a serious serious breach and, and what that brought to mind with your question is you know, where, where am I in terms of serious breaches? You know, are there, are there boundaries that really result in serious breaches? And building what you said, Bill, you, I think you talked about parochialism or provincialism. Is that what word you use? Provincialism. And so I, I'd also say tribalism and provincialism is alive and well today, 21st century. So here we are. And I think there may be a travel and tourism I think message that we can carry with this as well as Jesus moves through Luke, moves through communities, deals with tribalism, provincialism. It's alive and well. 
and uh, we're in the position of I'm in the position of making decisions about whether to put up a wall or breach hospitality or whether I want to cross into another world. And in this case today, in a mass media world, in a place where there's so much mobility, uh, tribalism and something that's different, it could be across the street from me or right down the road or in another zip code. So I just wanted to uh, add that to the discussion. I also want to say it's, I was fascinated by uh, him sending people forward. This is all over the letters in the New Testament. It's all over the scripture. It's all over the Old Testament, too. Advanced teams matter. Advanced teams really matter because there are barriers, uh, and they can break them down because people have pent up biases and prejudices, and the advanced team is to find a safe place and to introduce the idea of someone or something new. We saw this even in the United States in the Civil Rights Movement. They were advanced teams that made it possible to make decisions about where you go. And so this is an advanced team that deals with boundaries, maybe healthy boundaries. And I wanted to highlight that uh, in this case, it's different. So much depends on an advanced team. In this case, it doesn't work. And I think the failure of the advanced team is kind of a hidden message in this too. It does not work. Even the preparation doesn't work. Uh, this is a first encounter with boundaries that cannot be broken through. And I think that's different. I think it's meant to be different. And with the, the journeys of Christ beginning to take place here, uh, this may be about the business of his ministry and how it impacts travel protocols. This is not a political movement. This is not just folks moving from town to town. It is something different. And the protocols of being involved, including not calling down fire or working it with anger, are really different. And a final note I made on this was related to Christ in terms of Christ of the memory, the remembrance, and the legacy of Christ, Christ present with us. In this case, Christ is not allowed to be present. But I think it goes to the calling down of fire and anger and retribution. Uh, and just put it in a blunt way, you remember when Christ was here? Yes. He burned down my house because I wasn't nice to it. I mean, just to kind of cut to the chase, it's like that blunt facts there as well. Yes, was he? did he travel through the community? Yes, uh, he felt we didn't treat him well. He burned my house down. That's what I've got, Sarah. Oh. So I took a different tact through this, and I was looking at the, the notion or the idea that there are, there are resolutions that cannot happen without, let's just say, the hand of God on them. So I've been pondering this truth offered by the words and the actions of Jesus, this tension between the Samaritans and the Jews. And I wonder if in recognizing the false narrative that seems to plague our world as well as their world, that by making somebody else less than, that we somehow make ourselves greater. And I wonder still if the only way to resolve this problem with prejudice is to quash the illusion with truth through love. Though Jesus has set his face toward Jerusalem, the sacrifice is coming. These events will resolve themselves after the, re after the resurrection. I'm not sure how, because we still stand with them. Um, to quote John Debevoise, 
this week when he preached, he preached about the the prophet um, Isaiah. They said the role of the prophet is to tell the truth in love. So here we have a moment where Jesus is, is confronting the disciples saying, drawing down fire from heaven is not an appropriate response to this. So he as a prophet is walking through this part of the world, demonstrating what it looks like when you do it with love versus when you do it with anger or hostility or this historical point of reference that says it's always been this way, will always be this way, we should hate each other. I think Martin Luther King was on to something and was following Jesus' instructions when he said darkness can't drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. The love given by God and the love, give, the love lived out by Jesus and the, the spirit who pursues us in love never lets us go. And that's the resolve. If we see each other as beloved, the only real difference will be whether or not we stand in awareness of that or not. So that's kind of where my brain went with that question. Here's question two. In verses 57 and 58, someone declares, I will follow you wherever you go, which prompts Jesus to respond with, foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Mark Davis asks, are the references to these foxes and birds here simply animal references about having a home? Or do these particular animals represent something larger? What are your thoughts about these verses? Bill, since I went to you first, I'm going to go to Don. Don, what do you got? Why is this so difficult when we have these tangible things? You know, he's handing us animals, different kinds of animals and a journey. Why is this so hard? You know, you I, you know, think with the poetry and the, the all the things you can compare. So I just wanted to say, I, I after all these years, I'm still struggling with it. Uh, so I think for me, the key would be it is about a journey first. So I want to follow you. There's no place to rest. There's no place to call home. I think that's important along the journey. So you you're pulling out a place for the Christ to rest. Uh, this is going to be kind of blunt and shallow because I really am struggling with it. Uh, on Mark Davis's question that you have, I am struggling to make them particularly unique uh, in terms of like metaphor, the fox. The fox is in Luke as a destroyer when it comes to Jerusalem. Uh, but that, for me, that's just a, that's, for this verse, it's. I don't think it connects. Uh, so I'll just go to number one. Neither example, fox or the bird, are on the surface of the earth. That's just what jumped out at me. Neither are on the surface of the earth. And the image of Christ walking across the surface, in the case of this journey as he sets his face on Jerusalem, walking across the surface, not above it, not below it, is a unique thing just on the surface, which is exposed to the elements, uh, to the arbitrariness of weather, to hunger. He's on the surface. Uh, And neither of these creatures are on the surface. All creation 
And I'm, I'm thinking that I'm, I'm saying they're not unique and that they're examples of what creation is. All creation has a home and is a part of the ecosystem of creation and the unique ecosystems in which foxes and birds live. There are unique homes, but there's a home. So I'm going from the specific to the general that there is a home. So I'm voting for home, but within that home, uh, it's for, pre- it's for predators and birds and scavengers alike. Everything, all God's creatures, all creation has a home. And then I want to add to that, when you talk about a fox in a hole and a bird in a nest, aha, what is the subtext? Uh, offspring, growth, sustaining. Birds lay eggs. The fox has, is it a cub? Is that a, what a cub? What, I forgot what a fox would have, but that's just where... Life goes on. Life goes on because you do not have to live on the surface of the earth in every way. So the predator and the scavenger and the bird, all those things go on. So, and the offspring have a safe place. Remember, they're not alone. The bird has a nest because they're chicks. The fox has a hole because it protects the, the, the uh, is it, again, I'll say, is it a cub? I forgot what a fox is. is. That there's a place for them. Now, I lay on Christ on top of that who's beginning this journey. And along, it's almost like if you want to use a linear timeline, he begins the journey. Where's the journey going? Along the way, there are no holes and there are no nests. He remains on the surface of the earth. Unlike anybody else, there is nowhere to go, nowhere to lay his head. It is incredibly vulnerable. It is that idea is filled with pathos for me. And he does lay his head at the end. He lays his head on the stone in a tomb. So that's my thoughts. You know, um, my brain jumps straight to uh, Luke chapter 13, verse 32, where Jesus is replying to a statement that Herod is looking to kill you, and he goes, tell that wily old fox, I'm going to be here for three more days, casting out demons and performing cures, but after that, I shall be um, the third day shall be perfect, is what he says. So I'm I'm interested in the metaphor, and you use the language, the fox as a destroyer, that Herod has a palace. That would be the fox. The birds of the air have nests. That would be the Sanhedrin. Pilate has a post, but Jesus has to borrow lodging, an upper room, even a stable. Jesus' home is with God. Um, And what does that say if God does not have a place to call home? This changes with the resurrection and the ascension. The temple is broken open, transformed by the giving of the Spirit, crafting a resting place within each believer. We've talked about that before. So that's kind of where my brain went. Bill, what are you thinking? Uh, remember to unmute myself. Um, I would say, Sarah, uh, that until you raise this question, I took this on what I guess you would say is a rather level, literal, simple, straightforward level, uh, that all animals by nature have a resting place, foxes, holes, birds, nests, um, and then your question made me think, well, okay, 
what more might there be? And it occurred to me that maybe, uh, and I think maybe uh, you and Don had suggested this, it's meant clearly to differentiate what can be assumed about what we call animals and what is true for human animals. For followers of Jesus, their lives will be in some ways nomadic, changing locales, depending on others for hospitality. Uh, There's a good bit uh, elsewhere in the New Testament about hospitality and welcoming strangers. Um, Now, it, it seemed to me if one wants other levels of symbolism, it could be noted that the fox is ground-based and the bird is ground and air-based so uh, and they have those animals have virtually no dependence on human hospitality other than our potential to poison the environment or to invade the animal's resting habitat there's a kind of uh, relaxed uh, expectation for other animals, but human animals uh, need more for uh, the luxury of, of a resting place. Um, but again, uh, I realized with your question that I just tended to take this as a rather simple, straightforward uh, example without any other deeper meaning. So thank you for the question. You're welcome. Charles, do you want to add anything? No. (laughs) All right. Question number three. I'm thinking about the responses given by those who are invited to go with Jesus. Have you ever found yourself torn between choices like this before? And how has that experience impacted your faith? And Bill, I have to tell you, I'm looking for a both-and answer, so I'm hoping you got one for me. You're muted. Sorry. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you, Sarah. Uh, This one stimulated a lot of reflection also, as well as number one. All all three did. Um, it, It acknowledges that no matter how deep our faith is, we deal with competing claims on our loyalty. For example, as a pastor, I struggled throughout my ministry with the tension between family time and professional time. I think I got a bit better at it, but um, I never really felt like I had that clearly in balance, and I'm in a clergy support group, and we meet monthly, led by a professional counselor, and that tension often gets reflected in what clergy share, is the the challenges of ministering to other people and the challenge of one's own family. So it it is a, a tension, and I think in this case, it's Jesus is literally asking them to physically follow him. But I take this as a, as a metaphor. I, I consider myself a follower of Jesus Christ. 
but I make excuses. Uh, an example, until I went off to college in a different environment and majored in history, I ne- I, it astounds me, I never questioned uh, the issue of legal segregation in America until I went off to college. First time I went off and came back for Christmas break and encountered friends and family who assumed I still did not question society's and law's endorsement of segregation, I I compromised. I basically stayed silent. Uh, I, I felt very uncomfortable, but I, in a sense, compromised because I simply listened and I can well assume people assumed my agreement with them. Uh, another way I dealt with it, the Presbyterian Church has a tradition, uh, which I honor, that we respect the separation of church and state. And yet there were times I felt the need to, to seek to deal authentically with biblical, moral, and social justice issues without getting into partisan political debates and that is a tension I I don't know that I ever resolved for myself and along with that I struggled with balancing the honoring of differences of opinion among congregation members and yet seeking to be transparent about my beliefs and how I apply the gospel to real life challenges an example, the death penalty. Um, and I will be honest and admit, there were times I hesitated to address issues out of a concern for how it might affect the financial support from congregation members. Um, and what I sometimes have and do wonder about are the ways I compromise and excuse but do not have an awareness that I am compromising. And in this regard, I resonate with 1 Corinthians thirteen twelve. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we see face to face. Now I know only in part, then I will know fully as I have been fully known. Or as Peterson in the message says, we don't yet see things clearly. Clearly, we're squinting in a fog, peering through a mist. Um, I think that's a bit of a rambling response, and maybe a kind of both and. But it, I will acknowledge, Sarah, that this issue, just like the issue of people who worship the same God hating each other and dividing themselves, the Samaritans Jews, in the same way we today um, make excuses about not being fully congruent with the gospel. Thank you, Bill. Charles, do you want to add anything? No, thank you. I'm moved by all of this, but I have not a contribution to make. Yeah. So um, I struggle with the tension that we have here in the language. Um, And the tension, I think, that presents itself 
as we seek to move to become more like Jesus and less like our own selfish self, (laughs) if that's the right way to say that. Um, Pamela Bruker commented on Janet Hunt's article this week. Um, Perhaps it's more of a derailment. People's agendas for their own purposes rather than life's agendas that are justice driven by God's purposes. And I agree with you. I think we often are confronted with this position or the the challenge of how do we reconcile living in our world and yet following Jesus at the same time in the example he set forth um, and, 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 and sitting within the context of where we live and the context of where we worship and the challenges of navigating you know, how do we respond when others present sharp edges to us and we're not sure how to respond without cutting ourselves, so to speak, or we present sharp edges to someone else and put them in that same position. And I'm speaking metaphorically and not directly, but um, I think that we are confronted on a regular basis how to live as followers in a world that struggles with that. Don, do you want to add anything? Uh, this is, I think, a great question for discussion groups. You could, you know, get a chalkboard or whiteboard out to ask these questions, so I appreciate that. So just to, for, for organization, you've got the dead, the plow, and the farewell. I think those are the three pieces, just in general. And uh, there may be a way for folks to accept two different approaches because one is my temptation is always is always to wedge this into something that I can understand. And it, it's easy, right? I mean, I can actually make this palatable. And then you can also make it incredibly radical. And I think we get to play on both. I think the scripture invites us to, to go both ways. So if you're leading a discussion, we try both. Get radical versus something that we can deal with. And for me, it's this the reading this time is is fairly practical and I, I know I'm cutting to the fundamentals here but just to answer the question that for the dead you know my notes and my journey is just saying it's not just avoiding living in the past it could be ancestor workers worship tribal worship uh, belonging worship but I think that's the fun, for me a fundamental message of this and it goes deep it's you know the idea of not the, letting the dead bury the dead is very difficult because I don't know about you I hold on to the past and I hold on to who I think I am and I hold on to what I think people want to think about me and <clears throat> excuse me what people expect of me <clears throat> pardon me but it goes very very deep so it's tough and then on the plow it obviously it's about the future but the discipline of the future and that takes we're talking about seasons here so it goes very very deep it's not just be careful or be aware or drop it or drop the past so you can do the future. But, you know, this is about what seeds are going to do months from now and plowing the straight line and the discipline about the future. And in terms of the farewell, that was a little tougher, isn't it? But I think what is the process of saying farewell? It might be the distraction. We're really good at farewells and departures. Uh, you know, speaking as an American, that's a part of the culture. Well, we need to have a celebration. We're going to take a week to say goodbye. 
you know, go, go, what do we really do when we say farewell? It's not drop, dropping by the house going, by the way, something's changed, I'm leaving. Farewell is a part of our culture and something we hold to. Like the dead, maybe it connects more closely to the dead. That you know, when are you leaving? In three days. Well, I might stay another day. That's something that we get caught up into. So I hope I'm not wedging this into something that makes it easy for me to understand. But I think each one goes very, very deep. And in the theme of your first question, Sarah, I'd say see first question. Biases and prejudices are buried in these three. The dead, the plow, and the farewell. They're incredible biases and clingy things here. So I think I've gotten in the past caught up in the, the the appearance of abruptness. I don't think it's about being abrupt and being radical. I think it's about understanding that there's incredible weight in these things. And if you meditate on the weight and where it might turn our little heads, that's what we need to do. And I think it prepares us for a journey because, again, this is, we're setting the stage for Christ's journey, which we'll, we'll be looking at, I think, through much of the summer. And I I pulled a quote that's a part of my childhood, and you may recall it, folks, from, from your childhood. So it's an old Chesterton quote, but it prepares us for what the travel of the journey may be in our lives, and it's right around the corner. It's not like we're asked to depart and go somewhere else. I can go, I don't know about you, I can journey a zip, go to way, or meet new people. It's quite a journey, and it's quite a discipline to be able to do that proper. And Chesterton said, the whole object of travel is not to set foot on a foreign land. It is, at last, to set foot on one's own country as a foreign land. And that's what I've got, Sarah. Are you there, Sarah? Well, I think Sarah had to step away, but uh, I, I think that brings us to the end. Let me just go around the table here to see if there's anything else to add before we say goodbye. Charles, you good to go? Bill? Uh, I would just add that I think this portion of Scripture reminds me of the urgency to make a decision. Um, and um, that I can understand. Um, but that, that's all I'd add for the moment, Don. Great. Thank you. And for folks listening in, Palmasia Presbyterian Church is at 3501 West San Jose Street. That's in Tampa, Florida. That's the church that makes it possible for us to be able to do this podcast each week. And for more information, you can go to palmasia.org. That's P-A-L-M-A-C-E-I-A.org. We commend that site to you every week. Great sermons, discussions of and disagreements around uh, different uh, scripture passages, uh, great prayers, outstanding music, opportunity to take communion. So check that out. Always welcome, and we'll see you next time.